So I'll be reading from Romans chapter 6, from verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Jesus, as Christ, just as Christ, was raised from the death through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like, this, like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but under grace. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Andres, for praying. And it's, it's really great to be on a Sunday together with brothers and sisters. Uh, I do hope you've had um, a great weekend. So have many of you been able to sort of be around in the city and see all the kind of all the things, parade and 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 a concert at the Freedom Monument. And I, so I, I was going back from my mom's yesterday, so I missed the first laser show. Did you, did anyone of you see the laser show yesterday? So, uh, and then I had to rewatch it at home on telly, but it's just, you know, these, I prefer the laser show to the fireworks because also when I see the laser, it kind of reminds me of the Christian duty actually in the world as I was pondering on it you know a warm light shining in the darkness and in the same time it's, it's warm but it's also with a laser precision so you know our, uh, our doctrine and life in the world should be like that kind of laser show I, I don't know I was kind of meditating on the on the Christian impact in the world because it's it's a big thing for Latvia uh, and and so also we as Christians should should appreciate uh, appreciate it Right, anyways, please do keep your uh, Romans passage, uh, chapter 6, open. We're going to be looking into it today. Uh, but let me, let me start with, with this. A Christian man I know had to go to prison because he broke the law. It's not, it's not a hypothetical uh, example. It's a real example. He knows what he did was wrong, and he knows his sentence was just. So now... He pays by doing time in prison. But he also knows that God is gracious. He knows that Jesus has paid for all his sin, 
already. And he knows that he is already forgiven for what he did. But because of what, not because of what he did, Jesus forgave him, but because of what Jesus did. This Christian man in prison has understood Romans 5. Well, in case you've missed some of it, in case you've missed Romans 5, here's a quick recap. In Romans 5, we saw that a Christian who has been justified by faith in Christ has assurance for the future. Uh, we do not need to fear the day of judgment because we have the hope of glory. We are confident that we will be delivered from God's wrath on the last day. And we can have this confidence because of our faith in Christ, which means that we belong to him now. Adam, whose sin brought death to all, no longer represents us. Christ represents us. And his act of righteousness, his death on the cross, wins for all who believe him eternal life. That's in a nutshell, Romans 5. And so the Christian man in prison actually experienced, glance back at verse 20 of chapter 5, he experienced chapter 5 where, verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Result, grace reigns, grace wins. Is not grace marvelous? Well, is it really? Says the decent church-going person of chapter 6, verse 1. Isn't grace rather immoral? Glance at verse 1 of our chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? We imagine the Christian man coming out of the prison and joining his church on Sunday. Maybe he gives a short testimony about the lessons that he learned while in prison. And he and everyone else praise God for his marvelous grace. But not everyone. Do you see, do you see how a decent church-going person might be scandalized by grace. What? Is that it? How on earth does grace encourage me to live a godly life? If grace increases where sin increases, then it doesn't matter how I live. Why bother? God will forgive me. Just, just as he just forgave this, this ex-convict. Why bother living a good life? Do you see? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, Paul's answer in this chapter, in verse 2, is, is a big no. You see? No. By no means. No. And he does two things in the rest of the passage. First, in verses 2 to 11, Paul gives the reason why living in sin is not the right response to grace. 
And, and second, from verses 12 to 14, Paul spells out what the right response to grace is. So the wrong response to grace is, is, is sinning, yes, but why? Firstly, because we have new identity. That's Paul's reason. We have new identity. Christians have been set free from the power and dominion of sin. And, and secondly, that new identity then creates new obligation. And from verses 12 to 14, Paul will tell us that we should not let sin reign in our lives. But instead, we should offer all of our life, all ourselves to God. That's the right response to grace. So let, let's look at these two in turn. And um, firstly, our new identity. Christians have been set free from the power and dominion of sin. So how can we continue to live as if sin is still calling the shots? Paul says it's a, there's a contradiction. Maybe, you know, maybe we don't say out loud as Christians, we don't say, you know, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Maybe we're, we're not that, you know, straight. But might have a thought crossed our mind sometimes. Does it really matter if I sin here and there, you know, kind of little sin here, little sin there? God will forgive me anyway. You know, sometimes this kind of thought can cross our minds. And Paul's, Paul's response to a person like this is you haven't understood what, the, what happens when someone becomes a Christian. It's slightly, Carlos, it's slightly feeding back, sorry. A bit, bit echoing, sorry. So Paul's response would be to someone, you haven't understood what happens when someone becomes a, a Christian. You, you have you have. You haven't just been given a certificate of justification. You are actually in the right with God. Your new identity means not just a new legal status, but much more, Paul says, a new life altogether. And so Paul says you must start to think differently about yourselves as we heard in the introduction for today. Think differently about yourself. Your Christian identity means you have a new life. Verse 11 is actually our key verse. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how you should view yourselves. So, do you think about yourself rightly? It's a question. Do you view yourself as God now views you? Not just given a certificate of justification, but actually, actually dead to sin. And having a completely new life because of Jesus. Is that how we view ourselves daily? Actually, our passage has sort of three uncomfortable images of our old self that belong to the old life. And, and friends, when, whenever we don't think rightly about ourselves, 
then Paul says, we are like, ready for the three images? We are like zombies, slaves, and prisoners. We are like, verse 2, zombies who have died to sin, but for some reason, you know, we are still alive and kicking because of the zombies dragging, you know, behind us. Has anyone seen Walking Dead? You know that, that kind of person, yes? Right. And, and, and verse 6, we are like slaves whose master sin has been put to death. But for some reason, we still feel prompt to serve him. We don't have to, but we still feel prompt to serve him. And, and then verse 7, we are like prisoners who have been set free from prison. But for some reason, we feel like we would be better off back in. How do you view yourself? I know we, we, often feel, we often feel like zombies. Well, certain medical students often feel like zombies after like three nights of studying without sleep. But, you know, many of us doing night shifts, we sometimes feel like zombies. But we don't like to think of ourselves, you know, uh, like walking dead. Paul would want us, though, to reflect on that. If we think that the right response to grace is continuing living in sin, we still think of ourselves in terms of old self. We haven't grasped our new identity, Paul says. So imagine how the the Christian man, the Christian man um, is eventually released from uh, the prison. He has served the sentence. He's released from the prison now. Um, and he's finally free. And he can now meet his friends. He can take out his motorcycle and he can go to the seaside, to Yurmala. But instead, he asks if he can be locked up again behind the bars. Uh, because he rather enjoys the kind of the grim prison walls and the industrial view out of the central theatums. He prefers it to the seaside. How bizarre would that be? You're free. You're no longer imprisoned. Go. No, I want to back. How bizarre would that be, right? And so every time Christians think that we can get away with sin because of God's grace, Paul says we go back in our thinking. We go back to being like zombie slaves and prisoners. And Paul wants us to see that because Jesus, what Jesus has done, and he's done away with sin, we are no longer, we are no longer walking dead. We are no longer slaves to sin. Because Jesus killed the slave driver, and we are no longer prisoners of sin. Jesus has set us free from the power and dominion of sin. Your Christian identity means you have a new life now. Dead to sin and a life to God. Now, how come I have this new life? Um, How does it work? How can I say I have a new life now? And what is our connection to Christ exactly? Because, friends, as we saw in chapter 5, we do not have a natural connection with Christ. With whom do we have a natural connection in chapter 5? Who is the guy 
Adam, right? We have a natural connection with Adam, but not with Christ. So listen again uh, uh, how it works. Verse 11, a key verse. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God, and now here, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. When the Bible talks about Christians, it views them as, sometimes Jesus has said, you know, as branches attached to a tree. Or Paul says in his letters, as limbs attached to a body, so attached to Christ. Now, for the sake of the illustration, I want you to think of yourselves as a multi-tool. Some of you have been slightly concerned, why do I have my knife with me? It's not a knife, it's a multi-tool actually. So I thought, let me illustrate. Think of yourselves for the sake of illustration as a multi-tool. I'm not going to sort of, you know, wield the blade here. Think of yourselves as a multi-tool attached to the, the belt of Jesus. Not belt of Andes, but belt of Jesus. I, I do not normally carry, again, multi-tool to church. In church, we fix things spiritually, or rather we get fixed spiritually. I don't expect to, to fix anything today. But think of yourselves as multi-tool attached to the belt of Jesus. The point being, we are united with Christ, attached to him. Where Jesus goes, we go. What happens to Jesus happens to us. Jesus died, Paul says, you died. Jesus was buried, you were buried. Jesus was raised again, well, you were raised again. Jesus now lives to God, you now live to God. What happens to Jesus happens to you. When did all this happen, you say? Well, here's a tricky thing. It all happened at the cross of Christ. But wait a minute, I wasn't at the cross of Christ. You know, I was born in 1996, or whatever, whichever your year is. And Paul would say, are you sure? Are you sure you weren't there at the cross? Because what Paul insists on in this passage, that actually we were at the cross. You actually were at the cross united with Jesus through baptism. Well, that's the marvelous, wonderful thing today. We actually were at the cross united with Jesus through baptism. Well, if you don't believe me, really, look, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 and let's read. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
Well, just a little detour, detour because, uh, b- before we come back to the, the whole thing being united with Jesus. Um, the baptism, it's not that the water of baptism, you know, as a sacrament, automatically transfers someone from life to death. You know, the, there, are, there are some denominations that actually believe it. It's not what Paul is saying here. The water of baptism does not transfer anyone from death to life. And water baptism is not just a symbol of what happened to the believer at the conversion. You know, some like to read it, um, read in here uh, the following things. You know, our going under the water of baptism symbolizes the, the death of uh, our death to sin, or being under the water symbolizes the burial, you know, of our old life, and our raising out of the arising out of the water. Sorry, symbolizes the new life of resurrection power. Have you heard of that? But that's not what Paul is saying here. He doesn't say that we experienced death, burial, or uh, resurrection like Christ. Instead, Paul says, we were dead with him. We were buried with him. And we were raised with Christ. It seems to me that Paul views baptism on its own. So how does it work? I suggest that Paul refers to water baptism here as part of a larger, larger complex of conversion events. What do I mean by those conversion events? You know, when we come to Christ in faith, God gives us his spirit. And so we submit to baptism. We come to Christ. Well, he works in our hearts. We come to Christ by faith. He creates faith in us. We walk to him. He gives us the Spirit, and we submit to the baptism. And this complex of events, not just, you know, water of the baptism, but this complex of events brings us into the union with Christ. So just as we were previously in chapter 5, you know, just as previously we sinned in and with Adam, So now we have died to sin in and with Christ. We were buried in and with Christ. We were raised from from the spiritual dead in and with Christ. And and so, friends, uh, Paul views that this truth changes absolutely everything. You know, you are no longer a zombie, slave, or prisoner. You don't have to think of yourself like that any longer. You don't have to drag your old self with you all the time. Or, or, or you know, you don't have to submit to the slave master of, of sin, which, who, which wants to, to keep you imprisoned. Why? Because you are properly, you're properly dead to sin. You died at the cross. Here Paul saying, telling the same truth in verses 6 to 7. Look at verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, 
so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Again, when did we die? Paul says, well, we were crucified with Christ, together with Christ. That's where we died. And of course, the big word, the big word above all of it is through faith. Paul doesn't even need to to mention it here. It's implied through faith. Grace is marvelous, my friends. Grace is marvelous. And I just managed to switch off my notes, right? Just, you know, Jesus has changed our relationships with sin totally. It sounds weird, doesn't it? That Christians are in relationships with sin. Well, sadly, we still are. But these relationships have been completely changed because we have died to sin. Sin is no longer our master. Sin is no longer calling the shots in our life. We don't have to submit to it. And grace is reassuring. As far as God is concerned, you're dead to sin. You were raised with Christ. As far as God is concerned, he has already punished you. When? Well, at the cross, where you were with Christ by faith. So he no longer views you as the child of his wrath. He views you as his beloved child. No more punishment. And that's why in chapter 8, we'll be, will we be in, in New Year, Paul starts chapter 8 with this wonderful reassuring truth. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Old is gone. The new has come. A total change. This is how God views you now. How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself like God views you? My friend, keep turning back to verse 11. Keep turning back to verse 11 next week. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Grace is marvelous. So, shall we go on sinning? No. The reason we have a new identity, dead to sin, alive to God. But it's not just words, right? The new identity must show in our actions. And so our new identity creates for us a new obligation. So this is our second thing. The right response to grace is a new obligation. So, so what? You are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ, so do not obey to sin. Do not obey sin. Glance at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that ye obey its evil desires. I had someone uh, referring really kind of uh, precisely. You know, when, when sin was our master, we were incubators 
of do you know what's an incubator where sometimes the, the chicken up chicken are put and the eggs are you know kind of I don't know. You, you know what it, you know what I mean. So, when sin was our master, don't think of the eggs now. We we were the incubators of lust. You know, we ran various sort of fantasies in our mind. Uh, so, what, what sort of film are we running now in our heads? And and, and so Paul says, Jesus has turned us into the incubators of worship, not lust. So now we can run a diff different film in our mind. Whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is admirable. And friends, only when we view ourselves rightly can we start live rightly. We know that understanding of who we are will impact what we do. Oh, that's why people take extensive personality profile tests to know which line of work they should pursue. They want to know whether they are, you know, analysts or diplomats or sentinels or explorers or, you know, etc. these personality profile tests. People want to be true to their nature. They want to sort of work in accordance to, to who they are professionally. A another popular way of looking at ourselves currently is sexuality. You know, people say, I identify as straight or gay or bisexual or asexual. The line is very long. And if that is how we mainly identify ourselves, of course, it will impact how we act. It will impact how we live. It will impact our behavior. Yet another common trait is to identify sociologically with a group of people. Very popular way to identify sociologically today is to be a victim. Just this week, I was sorting out my five-year-old. He was playing a victim card in our morning routine. And just as we were about to leave for the kindergarten, he suddenly ran back into his room, jumped into his bed and said, I'm not going anywhere. And turns out, turns out he felt oppressed by his kindergarten teacher. But why? Why he felt oppressed? Because his kindergarten teacher was demanding order and attentive learning. He didn't like it. And so he became a victim of oppression. Uh, and so, of course, this is kind of me putting the words. But, it, you know, it starts early on. It starts early on. And it's maybe funny when you're five, but it's not funny when you're 35. You know, or, or so. You see, we who are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, we identify with Christ. Okay? Not with sexuality, not with any social group, not with any particular you know, personality profile type. We are essentially Christian. Now we can be true to our new nature, Christian. And, uh, you know, for, for married ones among us, for married ones, you know, it will mean that we can't live, uh, you know, a single anymore. 
You know, when I was single, I could plan my time or holidays, you know, how I liked, when I liked it. But when I'm married, I can no longer do it. Why? Because union with another person has a life-changing impact. It transforms everything. And, and, and singles, you know, as you go out with friends on Friday night, a night like whatever, Saturday night, like yesterday or Friday, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You are brought from death to life. It's real. Union with another person, in our case, Christ, has a life-transforming impact on your identity, impacts how we live now, how we conduct now ourselves. So how does it show in our actions? And Paul uses this wonderful, wonderful phrase, offer, offer every part of yourself to God. Verse 13. Or be before he states that negatively, right? So do not offer any part of yourself to sin as instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. And so Paul would want us to rem remember who we are. We are God's multi-tool attached to Jesus' belt. Remember that. And so it really changes how we think, right? It changes, firstly, our mind. Our mind is turned, again, from the lust incubator into the worship incubator. Previously, in our minds, we ran a film about a better job, a better girlfriend, boyfriend, a better wife, a better husband, a better house, a better life altogether. That was the film that we were constantly running in our heads. What sort of film do I run in my head now? And Paul says, now, now in our minds, we can run a different film. It is about how can I serve better my brothers and sisters? A film of how can I be a better student? How can I be a better doormate, flatmate, more godly? You know, doormate, flatmate. How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? How can I be a better father and mother? We run a different film, or, or a daughter or son or, or whatever. It changes our thinking now. And of course, then it, it changes our tongues, how we speak. How do I use my language? What do I say? Do I build up and encourage one an uh, another person? Or, or do I put down people with my tongue? How do I speak about people? I was really thinking, should I share this example? So I sometimes go to gym and I overheard these, I don't know, 19, 18, 19, maybe year old, two guys really bragging about their kind of, um, you know, about their kind of weekend, uh, whatever kind of girls thing and everything. And I thought, right, I need to do something about it. So I, I thought to myself, if they go to sauna, I'm going to go there and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start a conversation. I'm, I'm just going to give them a big picture in how you talk about another person, how you talk about 
girls and women, how you treat them. And it never happened. I think God probably saw that sauna, you know, with the three naked guys in towels is not the best place to start talking about kind of intimate things. So God is why there. Thank God. But, you know, and when we become Christian, it... Our language, our, our talking, it changes because our thinking has changed. And, and actions, do we actually follow through as Christians what we believe? Do I take my time to hear what God has to say in his word daily, weekly? Do I set apart time for talking to God about other people and, and, and then talking to other people about God? Do I set aside money to help advance the, the gospel that brings people from death to life? Or use other resources to facilitate it? And, and so on. It changes our actions. You know, union with Christ as a life transforming impact. Now, are we going to be able to be perfect, God's multi-tool for Jesus? And we will see after Christmas that the answer is no. We will not be able to be in this life, in this world, a perfect God's multi-tool for Jesus. We will see that sin is still going to be present in our lives. Actually, we, we even don't need Paul to tell us we know that. We know that still sin is still present in our lives. We will sin, but our relationship with sin has changed. Why? Because we are dead to sin. Meaning, sin has no longer the power to condemn us. Sin is no longer our master. The good news is that if we are in Christ, God views us as his perfect multi-tool. And that's different. God views us in Christ as perfect. God sees us and he treats us now differently. Why? Because we are united to Christ. We are attached to Christ. And if we are attached to Jesus' belt in his death, Paul says, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What a reassurance for all those who think, right, because of what my life is like. I, I, I know I'm a Christian, but why do, you know, why do I still think like that? Why do I still speak like that? Why do you still act like that? For all those who are really conscious and sensitive, you know, of what our lives are like, Paul wants to reassure us, because we are attached to Jesus, we will be with him. We will be with him. That's certain. Not because of us, because of him. And, and so, let me, let me close with words of John Newton. You might know John Newton. We sing his wonderful, wonderful song. You know, he was once a slave driver turned into the child of God. And so he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Not sure if it's on, on Club's menu today, but here is how John Newton 
referred to himself. And with these words, I am closing. I am not what I ought to be, not what I might be, not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be, but I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, John Newton says, I am who I am.